the Startup Sensations podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. Welcome to Startup Sensations, from both sides of the pond, with Belent Osman and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast with me, Belent Osman, from just outside London here in the UK. And me, Shelley Bays, here on the California coast where, oh, guess what? It's sunny again. Oh, how lovely, Shelley. <laughs> I love to tell you that, Belen. Well, I always want to know that. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Shelley, I mean, this week's episode, I think is going to be a very interesting one, slightly different to the ones we've had uh, earlier on in this particular season. And it's really around um, being entrepreneurial with your career people who take opportunities when they present themselves to be open to those opportunities and to kind of see where that leads. I know that's something that you've done in your career, Shelley, haven't you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting how you just characterized it uh, because I was thinking back as you were talking exactly the same for me. I started off in a very technical capacity, uh, biochemical engineering Um, But then moved over to business, worked in finance, did a bunch of things I thought I'd never find myself doing. And like you said, I actually ended up working in the world of entrepreneurship, working with startup companies and helping them find funding, help them, helping them with strategy, a bunch of things. So I wouldn't have characterized myself that way, but that is exactly what happened to me. How about you? I think it's similar, isn't it, in a lot of ways? Uh, yes, it. I mean, I certainly at the beginning of my career, I wouldn't have thought I would be an entrepreneur. In fact, I was a rather, should we say, dull accountant, or at least an accountant that may have been dull at times. So I thought initially my future lay in just trying to be a finance director or CFO. But then I had some opportunities to pivot from that into customer service, customer success, uh, then project management. And then I went into sales, which is perhaps an unusual route for an accountant to take. And, and that really uh, helped my career in entrepreneurship move forward. And the guest that we have today has gone through a number of changes in her career. Shelley, you know her very well, don't you? So why don't you introduce our guest for this week? Yeah, Helen McBreen, who is partner with Atlantic Bridge. Um, she's really an interesting woman. I've known Helen for a number of years as part of this whole kind of entrepreneur ecosystem. I first met her as part of something called NDRC in Dublin, uh, which is an incubator accelerator for startup companies, um, and have followed her career with interest. Um, she's got quite an educational background, which we'll ask her about, and has finally ended up a, a VC. And I'm pleased to say Helen McBreen joins us now from the wonderful city of Dublin in Ireland. Hi, Helen. Welcome to the Startup Sensations podcast. We're delighted to have you on the show. How are you today? Very well, Glenn. Thank you very much for having me on this afternoon. Nice to see you again. It's been a long time. Lots of things have been happening. And uh, thanks again for being here. You know, I wanted to start kind of from the beginning, if you don't mind. So, you know, it's always interesting for our listeners to learn about the background of the various people that we are talking to. So you had um, a very interesting 
university experience in that it was a very technical degree that uh, you took initially. Um, electrical engineering, that's kind of an unusual degree, certainly for a woman. But tell us a little bit about why you specialized in that field. Why did you choose that? And then you went and got a PhD and tell us about that progression. I was lucky enough to a very entrepreneurial father who built um, an electronics business from the ground up over 25 years. Uh, that company was acquired by a large French multinational in 2007. Um, but throughout my childhood and my education, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity all through that to have all of my summer jobs, you know, starting in in the canteen um, at the factory, that we that is what we called it. Um, right through to graduating from electronic engineering and working there um, after some some roles overseas. So I guess I, I, I didn't lick it from the stones uh, is the expression, um, but I was also very interested in problem solving and technical subjects, um, science, engineering, computers, all of those types of subjects and maths and applied maths were the, were, were the ones that I enjoyed more and did better at, I guess, in, in school. I applied to our largest university here in Ireland, University College Dublin, to study engineering. And when I first, when you go into that first year of, of engineering, uh, you do foundation engineering, so you're doing bits of everything. But I really liked the electronics side of it, probably because some of that was a little bit familiar to me, having grown up in, a, in an environment that afforded me the opportunity to see, I suppose, high-tech engineering for the automotive business, at least, um, come to fruition. So I studied um, at University College Dublin for four years and just thrived in that environment, loved all the challenges of engineering. It was a lot of practical work alongside a lot of study and theoretical work and just became ever more interested in the tiny electronics that power the world. So what was your PhD thesis in? So after UCD, I moved to Edinburgh, to the University of Edinburgh, to, to, to study speech recognition and speech synthesis. Okay. But 20 plus years later, it's so much easier to explain what I studied my PhD in when you say things like Alexa or Google Home, any of these communication devices. That was exactly the research that I was working on back then in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. It was a research centre at the University of Edinburgh, which is a leading university for speech communications. And that centre was called the Centre for Communication Interface Research. And we were working a lot with banks, telephone companies, uh, to improve speech recognition systems, which were, at that time, terrible. <laughs> so, you know, the, the PhD thesis on the technical side was very much in the area of artificial intelligence, but that was at a time I often say that it was not cool to say AI. You know, there were certainly no jobs in the space and there was very little data and we certainly didn't have any compute power uh, to do what we needed to do from a research perspective. But it's fascinating now in the commercial world to see all of this research being applied um, and using that technology to solve real problems. We also did a lot of work in multimodal environments, which were virtual environments such as the metaverse. Um, so that was a term that certainly wasn't used then, but is much more pervasive now and will become ever more so. And, it, you know, the, the basis of that research and the basis of my PhD that, you know, was really about how we communicate in computing environments, what the human-computer interaction should be. And it was fascinating world and even more so now because you see these as i say you see these technologies come into the market 
it tells you how long it takes to actually to truly commercialize research. You know, it can take decades to, to get things to market. Helen, uh, I'm really interested in your journey to, to what you do today, because obviously today you're investing in companies, you're doing your due diligence, you're trying to pick out the best businesses um, for growth. So just to go back to the, the early part of your career, you were in research positions and then you moved into sales. What were some of the challenges that you faced, especially in the sales area, and what lessons did you learn from that that you can share with our listeners and viewers? Yeah, I've always worked throughout my career with early stage companies. Um, I think I enjoy that piece of business creation where things are getting started up. A little bit of chaos, I guess, but you're trying to to build um, structures uh, for growth. So I've always worked for early stage companies, albeit at the early in the early part of my career, I was working in technical roles. But when you're in a small company, which I was both in, in Japan for a while um, and, and here in Ireland, in startup environments, when you're in technical roles, you're frequently almost forced into customer facing roles because you're trying to communicate um, or solve problems for customers and use your ability as a technical person to, to create product or solve problems for customers. And I think in one of the startups that I had worked with, you know, I had that opportunity to a large degree um, working with salespeople who would bring me along to customer roles. And then in a startup, everybody's selling. You know, I think every role, no matter what role you're in, in an early stage company, you're always selling and you're always trying to communicate to customers. So before long, I understood that everybody sells, that um, a lot of technical people, when you're trying to build something, you have to be able to communicate value. You have to be able to communicate how to problem solve. And I became more interested in the actual sale process itself and getting the technology or whatever it was we were selling into the hands of customers. So I spent a lot of time becoming trained more, um, I guess, in, in sales and built out sales teams uh, for several startups and worked internationally in sales roles. But I think all the while, the, the, you know, the, the foundation behind all, all of that is the engineer there, you know, just trying to solve problems and communicate with, with customers. I'm kind of interested in you saying that everyone has to sell, which is obviously very true in a startup environment. You know, everyone does everything to a level, to a degree. What what advice would you give people who are not salespeople who then have to sell? Because to to many, that's quite a scary thought to have to sell. Yeah, you're you're right. If you're not if you're not a salesperson, but you know you're trying to build a company, you're trying to understand what you're doing and you know why you exist and you know what problem you're solving. Um, so if you're the engineer or the designer or you're even in, you know, if you're in finance or whatever role you have within that company, you need to really take a hook on what the problem it is that you're solving. And everybody, I think, in a business needs to really understand, uh, you know, the purpose of that business. Yeah, I would agree. And it's interesting when one also works in a large corporation, it's easy to forget what is the corporation really doing. So, you know, that's that's kind of some advice, if you will, for anybody working for a company, big or small, but it's really manifests itself in a small company. So you and I met when you were at the National Digital Research Center, very impressive organization. And if I'm right, you really started something called the Venture Lab component of that effort. Tell us a little bit about NDRC, why you chose to join it and um, what you did while you were there and what, what you created. So NDRC has been in existence for over a decade um, here in Ireland. It's the National Startup Accelerator. 
it's evolved quite significantly, Shelley, since uh, you first met me there. It's relocated. There's a whole new team in place. But I think the fundamental mission of the organization is very much true to what it was back when we first met, which was about trying to find the right environment to allow entrepreneurs to thrive. That was a new kind of a new model, wasn't it, back then? Because, you know, accelerators, incubators, I mean, I realize there are differences, but but this concept of helping entrepreneurs globally, regionally was, was fairly new. So you were kind of breaking ground back there. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think it was pretty new at the time. I mean, there were very successful models in place in the United States. And I think Europe was trying to find the right type of accelerator that fits each ecosystem. You've accelerators and incubators um, successfully established now in Europe, such as uh, Station F in France and Paris. Mm-hmm. You have the whole Cambridge cluster, for example, in the in the United Kingdom. There are dozens all across Europe, which is great, and it just shows how it's evolved. Mm-hmm. Ireland is very small, and we have many, many things going on in it. So it made sense for us to have a national place for entrepreneurs to uh, to find support, mentorship, investment, and so on. Um, it's now located kind of regionally because we have our own clusters now in some of the other larger cities. So it's not just Dublin-based. The piece that I specifically worked on because I had a research background, having done a PhD and, and studied engineering and having had quite an interest in early stage companies, when I joined NDRC, my role was very much to find the right supports that would help spin-outs from universities de-risk. And the idea of doing it as an accelerator was that you would bring five, six, seven companies together at the same time. Um, they may be all d- delivering different products into different markets, mm-hmm. but fundamentally, you know, they still have a lot of commonalities in terms of the problems that they were solving and their team building strategies around their their, their go-to-market at the early stage, um, investment theses and so on. So there was a lot of kind of common threads that needed that they needed support with to help them de-risk. And the point of de-risking was to get maybe a first institutional check into those companies. So that first venture capital check. Um, so we set up a program and I ran that program and worked with a lot of the universities to get pipeline, I guess. Um, and still actually now, because my role has evolved into something that's not that dissimilar, have the opportunity to work with some of the brightest minds um, across uh, lots of fields of science and engineering across Ireland. Yeah, that's the exciting part. So, so I'm going to ask you one more question about your educational experience. The Kaufman Institute, that's a very prestigious distinction, being a Kaufman Fellow. But tell us about that. Demystify it for those of us uh, who need to know. The Kaufman Fellowship is uh, an international education-based uh, program for venture capitalists, so for VCs. Um, it's very much international. I was in the class of 22 there were over 50 venture capitalists from across the world um, came together over a two-year period. We met in the US, we met in Israel and Japan over a two-year period and shared experiences and shared challenges um, with one another about how to improve outcomes for entrepreneurs through um, investment. So any successful venture capitalists will know how to themselves fundraise Um, So working with your own investors and also deploying capital and finding the right structures or thesis to become your own best investor, um, but also to deliver returns for for your investors. So it is a hugely successful program. It's very um, competitive to get into this program. So it's a real privilege to get into it. And you have a lasting network after that 
particularly in the class that you're in, but also beyond that, there's a huge alumni network. One of my colleagues also completed the program. Um, and between the two of us, you know, we have really great access to other venture capitalists that you may co-invest with, yeah. which I have done. I'm proud to say that I've co-invested um, with some people uh, from my own class, but also um, helping each other just drive for better outcomes um, in, in venture capital. Can I, um, Helen, bring you up to date? Uh, Atlantic Bridge. I'm really keen to know much, much more about this particular firm. Uh, tell us about Atlantic Bridge. So Atlantic Bridge, uh, we are an Irish founded, but very much an international venture capital firm. We have over 1.3 billion under management across eight funds. We're investing from seed to growth. I manage the, the seed platform and we're investing specifically in deep tech companies in Ireland, across Europe and the United States. Uh, there's over 20 of us in the investment team located here in Dublin, where I'm, I am today, um, and where we're headquartered. We also have offices in London, Paris, Munich, and a significant presence in Palo Alto. We have been investing in predominantly semiconductor enterprise software companies, deeper tech companies um, in the quantum space more recently, robotics companies, very much those companies that have breakthrough innovations um, in deeper tech spaces. In our seed fund, we have also been investing quite significantly in health tech and how technology is applied into healthcare environments as well. So we have significant portfolio in that space as well. We have institutional backers from European Investment Fund, Enterprise Ireland, many of the banks, pension funds, family offices, your typical, I suppose, diversity of LP base. We've invested in over, over I would say, over 100 companies um, since inception. Um, I joined Atlantic Bridge in 2017, actually 2016, I beg your pardon, to establish the the seed fund platform. Can you just share with us some of your experiences and what the key differences are between operating in Ireland, maybe in the UK and in North America? The most obvious comparison, I guess, is that, you know, culturally we're different. Um, you know, I think particularly from Europe to the US, there's there's a different approach there. Um, I think I learned a lot about this actually in my Kaufman days that my, you know, my US classmates much more confident in outcomes and so on, I guess, and much more um, could articulate that confidence um, in an almost an infectious way. Mm-hmm. There's cultural differences, I guess, with some of our CEOs, but ultimately because we're investing in people or teams that are developing breakthrough technologies or have done so for many years and are trying to bring them to market, you know, these people excel in the technology areas that they're working on. So I think for us, the challenge is how we best communicate with these people and how we find the, the ways in which we can all kind of dialogue together, regardless of, you know, what jurisdiction we're from. We also have a lot of U.S. companies that have come to Ireland um, as a landing spot for to, to Europe and, and beyond. So, you know, we become that conduit. I think the, the, the original premise for Atlantic Bridge I guess the clue was in the title was to bridge Irish companies and European companies across the Atlantic, you know, to the US where most of the major markets were for many technologies. But actually, we've reversed that a lot now as well, where US companies come to Europe. So the cultural piece is is part of the bit that we understood that we needed to, to figure out from the outset of Atlantic Bridge, you know, that we were bridging people together, we were bridging people to investors we were bridging people to customers, um, to corporates, to other strategics and so on. So it's very much one of connectivity. I think that's how we solve for maybe some of the differences that we accept are the, the differences that probably drive 
good diversity in businesses anyway. One of the key approaches in Atlantic Bridge is to underpin everything we do with that kind of level of connectivity. How would you summarize the key challenges for any Irish or European-based founder looking to set up in the US? Uh, What are some of the key lessons that you've picked up on that you can advise those people listening to the show? The first one is to have good backers, to have a, a good investor base that understands and has a presence in the United States that has the network there. When you think about a, a startup, you know, some of the key things that they're going to need to do, one is connect to customers and the other is to probably, you know, expand their team. And to do that in a much bigger market, you're going to have to have good connectivity. And the best place to get that connectivity is through smart capital. Okay, so taking on either seed funding or or if you're at the Series A stage, a syndicate of investors that can amplify your presence in a pretty busy space. Um, so the connectivity of the investor base that you may choose to bring into your company is going to be really important and probably the thing that might set you apart at the earlier stage of your development. So Helen, I'm interested in, you've looked at startup companies now for years. What do you look at in a company that's got some very, very cool technology, but what else? What makes it investable? This is always, to me, the big, deep secret. What do you look at and has that changed over time? I don't think it's changed too much. For me, it's market. You know, you can have the best breakthrough technologies, but the, the market may not be there for it. It kind of goes back to the top of the conversation when we were developing speech recognition systems back in 1999, 2000. There was very, very little market for that, Shelley, you know, and, and it took 20 years to develop that market. So you've got to really have an understanding about, you know, when technology may make a difference in a sizable enough market. At Seed, where I invest in, you know, you have to make assumptions around, make make calls around when things may happen. And you don't always get that right. You may make assumptions that a certain amount of customers will, you know, start um, pulling this technology into the into their product suites. Uh, the startup may, may or may not get certain levels of traction. So you have to kind of set out what your strategy is for a startup when you invest. Like what's your investment thesis? What do you expect this company to, to deliver in 12 or 18 months time? How do you expect the market to evolve? Test your assumptions and see going into an investment if a company has, you know, maybe it's early stage validation, but some validation. So what's helpful from an Atlantic Bridge perspective is that we have such a breadth of connectivity in markets, in corporates, in cost, you know, to customers. We can call them up and ask for, get, get our diligence done in a, in a very interesting way. That often doesn't always mean that we're not going to make an investment in something. But sometimes those calls and that diligence helps us understand that there's a wider market for a technology. We have an, a recent investment in, in a space tech company, and it's using edge AI technology on satellites. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a much wider market for that type of technology. Uh, and that was the basis of, of some of our investment thesis there. We also have a, an investment in a company that's in the climate space where it's helping improve the bond strength in automotive and aerospace. Um, but what's the, the wider market opportunity there for that type of technology is in consumer electronics, which are everywhere. You know, they're in front of us uh, as we speak today. And they can make technologies and make materials lighter, okay, and use less materials in, in, in manufacturing processes. So we understood through certain diligence 
you know, with our connectivity, that there might be wider market opportunities for technologies. In some cases, when we do diligence, you'd say, okay, the, the market opportunity is just, it's just not there yet. You're tech, and we frequently see this with university technologies and IP. It's, sometimes it's technology looking for a home or it's interesting technology. It's just a little bit ahead of its time. That's kind of the hard part about really early, especially in, in deep tech kinds of companies, because a lot of them are, you know, infatuated with the technology. And it's like you say, it's a technology looking for a problem to solve. But on the VC side, it's going beyond that and saying, well, maybe there's not a problem to solve today, but maybe tomorrow there will be. Let's face it, there's always a bit of luck in these things as well. <laughs> it can be the right person at the right place at the right time, you know, just getting a particular customer contract or whatever. Um, but ultimately, you know, luck alone isn't going to build a business. You have to truly get scale and repeatable scale. So we look to very large markets. We've invested recently enough in um, breakthrough technology in uh, the semiconductor space. For, it's, a, it's a novel approach to quantum computing. Um, and we truly believe that this company can deliver significant impact into the quantum space at, at a scalable level. And it's technologies like that when you, you start with the market and then you match it with the right team and you make mm -hmm. that investment thesis. We believe that's the path that has brought successes to Atlantic Bridge today. And hopefully we can continue to repeat those successes as we continue to invest in companies. Um, Helen, I hope you don't mind me asking this particular question, but it's about uh, you being a very successful female in a male-dominated world of, of, of venture capital. So I just wanted to hear your perspective on the advantages and disadvantages of being such a successful female in the in the area that you're in. So Ireland is actually punching above its weight here. Um, in in Ireland, we are <laughs> the number of um, female VCs across all of the firms here in Ireland has increased. Um, so I'm not alone. Thankfully, it's. It's not a nice place to be when you're on your own um, in any stream of diversity. Delighted to say that we have many very successful and talented women here at Atlantic Bridge on the investment team. There are six or seven of us in total. We like to think that we bring a lot of diversity to our investment decisions. Um, but equally, we have 40% of our team are, are women, but 30% of our companies have women in either the founding teams or in CEO positions and so on. So we definitely are seeing those kind of correlations happening now. So, you know, one begets the other. We are also very, very supportive of increasing the numbers of women in VC across Europe we are a founding member of a very important network called Women in VC, European Women in VC. And more and more funds are joining this network, not just funds that have women in their general partners, but those that want women in their general partners. Um, and also institutional funds that want to invest in general partners that have uh, diversity in their investment teams. And uh, this is a really important network to be involved with. But on ground level here in Ireland, we contribute, um, and not just the, the women in Atlantic Bridge, the men here also do uh, contribute very much to driving more women into entrepreneurship. Ireland has a Women in Technology uh, Action Plan, um, Women in Business Action Plan. We're super supportive of that. We support 
activities within the universities as well to encourage more women from STEM subjects into commercialization. Once a year, I'm delighted to be one of the judges of the our children's uh, uh, science and technology competition, the winners of which are globally recognized now, and many of whom have gone on to set up successful businesses. So, you know, we give a lot, we get a lot, um, and we understand that this is a really important thing to continue to support to, to help continue to change the numbers. But we're doing really well here in Ireland um, and want to continue on that journey. That's super. Yeah, absolutely fantastic to hear that. So uh, long may that continue and grow. What specific advice would you give women entrepreneurs who are actually looking for funding from you? To have a plan. I'd, I'd say to the same. I'd say to the men as well. There's no, I, I don't see huge differences between a woman that comes in here and a, and a guy that comes in here you know, asking for investment. Um, the ones that succeed in getting investment for us are ones that have done their homework and that they have convinced themselves that we're the right investor for them. And then they've convinced us that they're the right company for us to invest in. So they've understood what sectors we like. They've understood where we can help them grow their businesses. I truly believe that there isn't a huge pile of difference between the men and the women that come in here. I don't have specific advice, particularly to women that I wouldn't say to to guys, other than have a plan when you come in for the first time to meet us, build a long-term relationship with us. Um, When I first joined Atlantic Bridge, I got to know the managing partners here at Atlantic Bridge many years before they hired me. They were very familiar with my background. They knew me when I was working at NDRC. Um, And it's the same for the entrepreneurs that we invest in here. I get to know them in some cases for many years before we write that first check. And when it comes to the actual investment piece, have a plan that you can show that together the investor and the company can be successful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So Helen, you know, for a young person today, wanting to follow in your footsteps, wanting to be part of a, an impressive venture capital firm, what would you recommend they do or the, the career path they should follow to get to where you are? In terms of advice for younger people who are looking to build a career in this space, you've got to kind of take opportunities as they come. For right or for wrong, I said yes to everything for a long time, <laughs> you know, so I could build as much experience um, into my career as early as possible. So I just got involved with so many different things um, and that has stood the test of time. I, I have to be a little bit more selective now because of I've uh, invested in 40 different companies and responsibilities to investors and shareholders and so on. But I'm very, very much would say to, to younger people to take opportunities. Be, do be selective with them. You don't have to take on everything, but be very open to taking on opportunities. Don't be closed ask loads of questions and try to build a lasting network as as early as you can, because you never know when people within that network become valuable um, or helpful. And Shelley, I I can still remember the first day we met many, many years ago and we continue to meet as best we can now. A lot of it's over Zoom and so on, but, you know, that has made things easy for everybody to, to stay connected, but try to try to just build a lasting network. It's, it's hugely valuable to you. Yeah, I would, I would totally concur with that. And the, and the idea of being opportunistic, you know, there's some interesting literature out there by a, a woman who writes about management structures and careers and this and that. And she says, you know, very few of us know exactly what we want to be when we grow up. And instead, we try things and we're open to things. And through that process, we find out 
who we want to be. Yeah. I will say that you are one of the easiest, nicest people to deal with uh, from a VC standpoint. So, you know, if anybody wants to contact you, Helen is going to be there and going to answer her phone. So that's a that's a plug for you, Helen. Yeah, if you're um, interested in speaking with me or connecting with Atlantic Bridge, obviously, I'd be more than happy to do that. You can find me on LinkedIn and we can catch up that way. If you if you think that you have an opportunity that might suit Atlantic Bridge's investment thesis, I'd be happy to have a chat. Well, thank you for your time today. Uh, thanks for your advice. And um, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Shelley. It was great to have the opportunity to speak with you today and to you, Bullent, as well. It was great to have this chance to share some insights. I don't know how valuable they all are, but maybe there's a nugget or two in there for a few of your listeners. Isn't Helen an interesting person? And, you know, I tell you, for me, she really personifies what we were chatting about at the beginning of the interview yeah. in terms of a career that has been sort of supercharged yes. by grabbing on to different kinds of opportunities. And, you know, one of the things that really interested me, because my background as well is a, a different type of engineering, her jump from engineering and very technical disciplines into sales yeah. from being a salesperson to being sold to. Yes. You know, as you jumped into sales, how did you approach that? I mean, what's your, you know, rule of thumb? It's interesting and, and maybe the subject of another podcast. Um, and in fact, next week's podcast actually is about sales. Uh, for me, it was an easier transition because ultimately it's about solving business problems. If you understand the target audience, if you understand your customer, if you've got a clear idea of what the business problems are, then it's about explaining in a very compelling, articulate and persuasive way why it is that your solution can actually solve the customer's problems. You know, interestingly too, what I took away from this, and maybe it's the engineer in me, was also the very pragmatic view she had on two points. One of them was, from her standpoint as a VC, what she looks for, is there a market? Is there an opportunity for whatever the product or service is that the entrepreneur is proposing to take off, for it to be successful, for it to solve a problem like you alluded to. And she gave the example of speech recognition, which was one of the things that she studied 20 years ago. And there wasn't the market that there is today. And then the other thing she said, which really resonated with me, is have a plan. Yep. How are you going to take this idea to fruition? Mm -hmm. It's not good enough to just say, wouldn't this be a great idea? But the really good and funded entrepreneur says, here's how we're going to take it to market. Here's how we're going to make it reality. So I, I liked that because that was something really tangible. I thought it was a wonderful interview, a wonderful conversation. And she's a lovely lady, clearly incredibly bright, very capable. She's got a great accent too, don't you think? Oh, well, yes. Well, I, I always love the <laughs> Irish and, uh, and Dublin's a wonderful city. Yes, it is. Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Get in touch with us. Email hello at startupsensations.com. 
And that's it for another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Startup Sensations. And feel free to contact Shelley or myself as well on the email that was just mentioned. We'd love to hear your questions, your feedback, and any recommendations you may have for the future. Looking forward to seeing you on the next episode. See you then. Bye-bye.